This is Designing the Revolution. You're listening to chapter 27, Assemblies and Ecstasy, and this is part one. Okay, so those of you that have been listening to or watching these episodes will know that I've broken my leg, but I'm out of bed. <laughs> so for the next few episodes, um, yeah, I'm going to be at a desk, for better or worse. So um, that's the first thing to say. Second thing is I'm hoping that these, these episodes on assemblies are going to be a bit of a standalone thing. So I'm going to do four of them. Um, and because some people might be listening to this because they want to know about assemblies, I'm going to give a little bit of background to the broad designing the revolution story, as you might say. So bear with me, you've been religiously listening or watching all the, the previous episodes. So I ho hope to go through fairly, fairly quickly. Uh, so the, what I want to say, first of all, is that this sort of continuity between building up to the revolution, you know, what you do to take control of the state and then what you're going to do afterwards. It sort of makes some sort of sense, but it, it's more complicated than that because particularly like with assemblies, assemblies are obviously like an end in themselves. They're a good thing, making decisions in, this, in assemblies. Uh, but they're also a mechanism through which to take power and consolidate power. So they've got this sort of dual role. So it's going to be a little bit messy, which is why I'm doing four, four episodes. And I'm hoping that you'll listen to all four because I'm sort of going to be moving around a little bit backwards and forwards. Um, OK, so as far as the story is concerned, I've been building up over the last, over the last um, few months, actually. I started off this, this series of episodes on designing the revolution with a fairly concrete proposition, which was that the neoliberal regime, for want of a better word, is going to collapse at some point in the next five to 15 years, maybe before, maybe a bit after, you know, these things aren't hard science, but there's overwhelming evidence that uh, the climate crisis, ecological stress, uh, breakdown and what have you, is going to become system collapsing at some point in that period. And that raises, in terms of social implications and political implications, two possibilities. A default scenario that states and societies regress into various forms of fascism, uh, scapegoating, uh, militarism and such like. Um, and the other possibility, which obviously is what this series is about, is that there's an opening for a fundamental read invention of what democracy a pro-social regime looks like um, something that's semi-decent let's put it like that this is not a utopian series it's not about how to make things perfect it's about how to not have fascism and use all the intelligence and knowledge that we've acquired over the last 100 200 years to redesign society um, on the basis of these good, empirically robust uh, notions of how we can organise ourselves. And as we've developed, I mean, I've been t 
trying to make this up, <laughs> make this up as I go along, to be honest, you know, because you say, okay, you're going to write all this and then it, things emerge. And one the thing, the, the central theme that's emerged is this notion of sociability and you, you can call it different things. But if you've been listening to this episode, uh, these episodes, I've been trying to sort of bring this in as a sort of coherent theme, as you might say, throughout throughout the, the series. And sociability is a word I'm using for this phenomenon, which is deeper and more fundamental than things like economics or politics. It's about what the substance of human reality is, which is people getting together and relating to each other in small group contexts. And that's something that obviously goes back, you know, thousands of years. It's hardwired into our system. What we like to do is get together in a free and non-fearing sort of environment and shoot the breeze, you know, gossip. And out of that comes our humanness and our pro-social uh, tendencies. And what we're trying to do then is, is design a revolution which is going to bring this natural goodness which is rooted in these social spaces of sociability and recolonize or colonize the dysfunctional elements of society, politics, economics, with this way of relating to each other. This specifically then goes into the design of nonviolent direct action, uh, how that's organised, and it goes into how to organise political organisation. If you want more details about that, then obviously, you know, you can listen to the previous episodes. Okay, so that got us so far. It's like this is the raw material, which is mobilising people in pro-social sociability ways. You're building up this, this movement, this way of confronting the regime through direct action, through good organisation and such like. Then we sort of flipped on to what you might call a macro strategy, which is, okay, so what's the big plan? Okay, we've, we know how to organise, we know how to mobilise. Where are we going? How do we use this social power? And then I brought in this notion from sort of left popularism, uh, which some of you may know about, of the construction of the people, Part of me thinks it's probably better to call about call it the emergence of the people. But the broad idea is is twofold, which is that there's a framing strategy. There's what you actually say in the public space, which is we are forming a new sense of the people, a new coalition, a new agenda, which is bringing together groups. And we all have the same interests. We all have the same desires for a decent life. And we're juxtaposing that to people who uh, we're opposed to, the ruling class, the elites, um, the uh, owners of capital and, and, and such like. Um, and then the construction of the people also takes place, unsurprisingly, through material transgression, through strikes, through direct action and such like. So we're building up this confrontation Maybe the confrontation, you know, comes because the system collapses in and of itself. Maybe it's purely through our own agency. Most likely it's going to be a combination of the two. And towards the end of this section of these episodes, I discussed about how to undermine the liberal class that dampens down uh, this revolutionary upsurgence, as it were, and distracts it and also about how important it is to use the security forces, the police, the army and such like, 
um, to enable them to defect, to undermine the material power of the, um, of the regime. So that brings us up to the present day and that's where it's now that I want to introduce this notion of assemblies and I want to go back a little bit in this episode to sort of do a bit of theory about what is it about um, assemblies, what's the relationship between assemblies and sociability, what's, what's the conventional theory about democracy, about decision making that has failed us and that lays the groundwork for the next episode where I'm going to give the solution <laughs> which is a dramatic thing to say and it is a dramatic, um, is a dramatic pro proposition and I think it's at this stage in the episodes that we've got to you know finally ask the question well okay we've got the micro design sorted out we've got this broad macro design construction of the people what are we actually trying to do here what society and state are we trying to create how are we going to avoid the really big no-brainer problems with the notion of revolution because a lot of people have said to me you know oh you know revolution that's a bad word and they're right right because revolutions have been catastrophically unsuccessful in many ways uh, not totally right We've got to be nuanced about this but in very significant structural ways there's been big problems one of the biggest problems I've got two problems one of the biggest problems is the problem of violence and this notion that violence is a tactic it's a tool where in actual fact it's a culture which is toxic and creates internal dysfunctionality uh, macho behavior in the in the same way that sexism has and I'm not going to deal with that here because I already talked about it at some length uh, but the fundamental idea is that it violates sociability goes it's it's a existential threat to the whole notion of sociability i.e., bringing to people together through free association not through the fear of violence so that's one major step forward which is these revolutionary episodes if they're going to be at all meaningful in a pro-social way have to maintain non-violent discipline the second major problem which is endemic in progressive and left movements the last 200 years is this complete blindness that if you're trying to get people to do things you know you're trying to get them to be sociable and socialistic and all the rest of it and they don't want to then what do you do and there's this pretense that because you think you're right then everyone else will see that you're right and there's no problem which is ridiculous it's empirically illiterate because the history of the last 200 years is the endless attempts by political ideological forces to force people to do X, Y and Z and they don't like it and ultimately this leads to civil wars and social disintegration and a mess to be, to be blunt about it. So what, what we have to um, what we have to investigate is reconstructing democracy and what we're going to go on to is doing that through this this idea of assemblies and that's what this episode these episodes are going to be about is is responding to that extremely valid critique 
of the revolutionary proposition, which is all you're going to end up doing is pushing people into what they don't want to do and they're going to rebel against you and you're going to have civil strife and, and all the rest of it. All right, so let's go. I'm going to move on to democracy in a minute. I just want to re re-engage with some of the deeper theory of these episodes which is that if you'll remember if you've seen them or if you haven't this is the basic idea is that we don't we construct how we see the world through meaning systems and these meaning systems are constructed and reconstructed as it were through the space of small groups of people. Um, at least if it's going to be functional, obviously people get influenced by mass media, social media, the political class, you know, dominating media mechanisms and creating culture and coercion. But we have this kernel, this sort of space in society, which is this life, life space, as it were, where people build, build up connections and that's what we want to expand. And this then is a rejection of this notion from the Enlightenment that people are atomized individuals, rational, cognitive. Um, and we have these, these grids of imposition, economics, politics. This is how people work. This is how the world works. And at the root of that is this notion of self-interest, the notion that you think about material cost and gain. And what we've been investigating in previous episodes is that this simply isn't empirically robust. This is not how people react. And as an alternative theory that we've put forward, which is a theory, right? It's criticizable, it's not the last word in the matter, that the fundamental um, nature of, of human existence is the desire for love, desire to give love and the desire to receive it. So we we're hardwired to desire connection and we're hardwired to receive connection. And if that gets messed up in 101 ways, then we become destructive internally or externally, individually towards other people or collectively towards other people. And that the notion of self-interest is one potential solution to this deeper need to give and receive love. So, so what what the assembly is doing is, is creating a space. The assembly is a whole bunch of people coming together. We'll investigate it more obviously in, in, in the next episodes, but it's a bunch of people coming together. So it's a sociability space and it brings together the joy of that sociability. People love to be together, but there's a, an additional element, which is the f making of decisions for a community and the co-creation of that. And this is something else that we desire, whether we realize it or not. And this is one of the reasons why I've called these episodes Assemblies in Ecstasy, because there's lots of evidence which supports this theory of human nature, which is people go into these assemblies and they come out going, that was the best time of my life. That was the best day of my life. I feel so fulfilled and connected because people have fulfilled fundamental needs. This is not about self-interest. This is about collective self-creation. It's another answer, in other words, 
to this fundamental need. Sure, self-interest is important, you know, cost and benefit analysis, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it's arguably not the main show, and it certainly isn't the only show in town. What people desire as much, or even a lot more, most of the time, is, is to come together. That's why people go to the pub, it's why people socialise, it's why this is what most people like to do. Um, so, so I'm going to sort of develop how all this works through, through this frame of sociability, the ecstasy of joint decision-making and uh, coming together. All right, so let's just hold that for a minute. <laughs> There's all these different bits. So just hold that for a minute. I'm going to come back to it. So I'm going to... Um, I'm going to do a quick review here about how people conventionally see democracy, how the Enlightenment uh, self-interested sort of logic sees democracy and, and the problems of democracy and why arguably things are not going well for democracies at the present moment. So, and then I'm going to come on to the, a major, major solution. In other words, we have got something interesting to say here. We're not going to just rehash the whole revolutionary routines of the 20th century. All right, so you can look at democracy in various different ways, obviously, but let's say democracy is defined as you're letting a lot of people or the people have a say. You're letting them decide what should happen. That seems a fairly basic definition. And... Most of the time, at least in modern democracies, the, the way this works is through representation. So as you all know, you know, you vote in an election, you vote someone into Parliament, they're your representative, for better or worse, and they make decisions. So as we all know, there's major problems with this, and these problems are becoming more acute. And arguably, there's a cycle in democracy. You know, some of the older ideas about democracy is democracy isn't the final stage, it's just another stage, and it degenerates into demagogy and tyranny, and there's good reasons why that's the case. Um, so let's just go through some of these no-brainer problems. First of all, if you have representatives in an unequal society, let's say a capitalist society, but this happens in other sorts of societies where you have a pre-existing inequality of power, is someone's got to pay for you to run your campaign. You need an organisation to get into, into Parliament, uh, which usually means you have to join a political party. Um, that's a really big problem. So you don't necessarily get the people standing elections that you want. You get people that have got connections, people who've been supported by rich people. That affects what they're going to say. It means they're more likely to lie to you because they're really in the pockets of the rich. Da-da-da-da-da, right? You know, this is not great. Secondly, you've got the problem that they get into power. And once they're in power, they're not accountable to you. You know, thank you very much. We've got your votes. I've lied to you. And uh, now I'm going to uh, show that I've lied to you by doing things that I said I wouldn't do. And the reason they're doing that is because they're really supported by uh, 
the rich and powerful. And um, now you can, you know, you can exaggerate this, of course, it's not entirely the case. And in some social situations, it's worse than other social situations. But it's reasonable, I think, to suggest that this is a major structural problem with representational democracy. And so related to this is, is clientism. So not only do you need money to stand in election, not only do you have the rich and powerful determining what you do when you get into power, you also have collective organisation that gets you into power, as I say, political parties. And political parties have their own interests, right? They don't just have the interests of the rich, they don't have the interests of the people, they have their own interests, which is obviously to get into power and to maintain that power as an end in itself. So you join a political party and they say, well, we, we need you to say this, this is how we want you to be, this is how we think we're going to be able to get into power. So you become a machine person and you get this clientism situation where uh, people will buy votes through favours, you know, we'll get that group to support us. Now, this isn't necessarily the end of the world, but it, it's hardly an idealistic version of how democracy is supposed to work, because you end up with this dysfunction where the parties are just looking after themselves, not looking after the objective social interests of society, as you might say. All right, so a third problem, which is particularly a problem over the last 30 years, is is you get in, let's say, you know, you get a good left-wing party, let's say, and, you, and you've got lots of working-class people in there, so you've overcome the first two problems and you get into power, but then you realise that the actual power doesn't reside within the state because you have this neoliberal global system where if you try and do something in the interest of the people, then you have capital flights, you have an international media undermines you, you have money coming into the country to uh, pay for people to un undermine you. In the last analysis, someone will have a coup, you know, uh, like the CIA in Chile. In other words, you're not actually really in charge. Uh, so there isn't any real real democracy, right? You've, you vote for different administrators of the existing system. Now, again, you know, we don't need to be ideological about this in the sense that this is always the same and always the case in some historical periods you know this isn't so much of a problem and in other historical periods it's a major problem like it is uh, at, the pre at the present moment. So what does this do you know just looking at this traditional conservative or pre-modern idea of democracy is this is the idea that democracy just doesn't last and the reason it doesn't last is because it, it corrupts itself uh, for, for the mechanisms due to the mechanisms you've just uh, talked about. And that means that people become disillusioned with democracy, you know, what's the point of voting? And then some demagogical, you know, populist right, dictator-esque sort of person comes along and says, forget all this crap, vote for me, I'll, I'll deal with the rich, I'll deal with the minorities that are scapegoats and I'll sort everything out for you. And we can see this happen obviously over and over again in the historical record and it's a major problem, right? So this idea that the system does not represent us, it's a danger as well as an opportunity. It's an opportunity because that enables us to recreate a new system, but also it's a major danger as we see with popular right forces at the present time that people, you know, it can lead basically in, into an anti-democratic, non-democratic future with all the crap that that basically involves and the extra 
horrors, of course, of this happening within the notion of mass migration uh, due to the climate crisis. All right, so what I'm trying to identify here is coming back to this notion that what we have, what human nature is not a blank slate. Human nature is such that we need to be in social relationships and those social relationships can't be bullshit relationships. They have to be co-created relationships from mental health to social health. And if, if a society isn't providing these basic human needs, then you get this lack of agency and this sort of turn towards dark sort of mechanisms to compensate for that lack of agency, lack of self-respect, um, lack of self-actualization, as you might call it. So what democracy does is it presents this possibility of co-creation, but it has this fatal weakness, which is it leads to the opposite of what it's trying to create in terms of a general theory of democracy. All right, so there's a solution here and there's a problem with that solution. Um, and I'm going to discuss the solution to that problem <laughs> in the next episode. But let's just do a little bit of a segue what we're going to talk about in the next episode. All right. So what people have come up with, particularly over the last 50, 50 years, let's say, since World War Two, is they said, OK, so this representation thing is not that great. Democracy isn't about representation. Well, it's partially about representation, right? You know, you get your guy into power. But it's also not just, not just being in power. It's being able to deliberate about what the right thing to do is. So this sort of complicates the notion of democracy. It's not just there's our guy by vote every five years. It's like, hang on a minute. If democracy is going to mean anything, it's going to mean, well, we need to talk about this. We've got a social issue. We need to sit down. We need to look through it, look at the pros and cons. And if you're not allowed to do that, then it's not, at least it's not proper democracy. Um, and also, you've got all these dysfunctions we've just talked about. Far better to get everyone to come together, forget about the politicians, forget about the rich and the power and the money, and everyone comes together in an assembly, let's say, and you have the issues and, and then you're going to talk about them. And there's a load of research theoretically and empirically about how that should be designed because, you know, needless to say, devil's in the detail. Um, so we can reference two guys here just to drop a few names in. <laughs> so there's a guy called Habermas, who you may know about. So he spent a lot of time going, OK, so what democracy, what a functional non fascist sort of future society is going to look like uh, because he was you know he's reacting to the whole Nazi disaster in Germany or saying okay what we need is to create spaces where people come together and there's going to be rules right people have time to speak people are not disrespected because they're in a particular group or you know cultural backgrounds not racism anti-semitism all this sort of stuff people are equal and they're respected as equal they've got the time to talk and then they can talk in a free way, there's not some guy who's going to, you know, make sure they lose their job if they say something out of out of, um, um, you know, something that shouldn't be shouldn't be said. So this is quite idealistic stuff, but it's arguably doable, right? You can bring these people together, and and what Habermas is saying is, then you 
get the best decision, right? And in support of this, that's, you know, stands to reason this is, this is correct. You, you bring people together and um, you have a frank and open chat, let's put it like that. And there's loads of details, and we're going to come on to some of these details about how you micro-design that. But you can see the general argument. Now, there's a, there's a side issue here. Well, maybe it's not a side issue, but it's an issue that can get over-exaggerated, but I just want to uh, give it a few minutes, <laughs> which is, how do you know it's the best decision? So on one level, this is a really big problem because maybe, you know, maybe society is really prejudiced maybe it's really dominating people can't see it they all get together they make decisions they think they're the right decisions but they're not the right decisions because they haven't included everyone they they haven't included people in the future they haven't they, they've got a closed sort of cognitive system so there's a guy called Foucault who would come along here you know as you, you may know this guy who would say this is just another system of domination so in some sort of rabbit hole sort of way you can always argue this in so much as ultimately you can't argue against it right because obviously people have have opinions and they're not god by definition so you've always got that critique but it's important that critique doesn't disable the whole process by some sort of absolute relativism as you might say so a guy called Rorty another philosopher has come along and said yeah 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 you know it's true we don't have objectivity but so what you know life goes on what we can do is come up with something that's called intersubjectivity which is look it's the best it's we put our subjectivity together we've focused on something that's got good empirical support for actually enabling people to come to free and open and satisfying decisions and we're basically bodging it, which I like. <laughs> so it's you know, a gloriously anti-utopian way of looking upon what we're trying to do to create a better society. It's like, we're not pretending we're gonna have everything right here. But what we are saying is, this is a hell of a lot better than authoritarian, fascistic, you know, totalitarian systems. And arguably it's a whole load better than a neoliberal, you know, clientele, rich and famous, dominant political system. So it's an improvement, right? No one's pretending that it's going to be the be or, or, or end all of everything. All right, so... There's a problem. And this is a, a more significant problem than the Foucault critique problem which is how do you get everyone together <laughs> right because people go okay representational democracy you know it's corrupt it's it's dominated by the rich and then you get movements like occupy you get movements uh, um, of sort of extreme radical left movements they're going what we need to do is get everyone together and what happens is you get everyone together and then it's not actually everyone, is it? <laughs> it's just a selection of people. And it's a self-selection. So why are those people, number one, going to come up with a great decision? Because they don't, they're not actually representative of the whole society. Um, 
and, and secondly, they've self-selected themselves. So that's no, that's no good. And the problem, of course, is this time and space problem, which is, well, you're not going to get 50 million people all to sit down and start making the decisions of a complex society. And even in, you know, it has been argued even in societies like ancient Athens, you know, where you had democracy in some form, you had the same, the same problem. In other words, it simply isn't possible to have direct democracy, which is deliberative and because of the physics, right? Because of space and time. So I'm going to leave it there because the solution to this and this major advance in the revolutionary program, as it were, of the 21st century, its advance over the 20th century program is going to be outlined in the next episode. And it's super exciting, dare I say it. Thanks very much.